Hello listeners and welcome to the Monto Weekly Podcast, bringing energy matters in an informal setting. This week we take the pulse of what's happening in Brussels. In particular, we hone in on several key areas that policymakers are currently grappling with. Central to this, of course, is securing alternative gas supplies at a European level and quickly. Also, there's the tricky issue of sanctions. Can we expect a collective EU response? And in the midst of all this, many member states have called for intervention into an energy market they claim is failing. Helping me, Richard Svarison, to unravel all of this is our Brussels correspondent, Siobhan Hall. A warm welcome to you, Siobhan. Busy days in Brussels? Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. Just want to start off by, you know, maybe talking more generally about the EU response to, to the war in the Ukraine. And what's your view or your take so far? So what we've seen is the EU responding, like you said, very much in a collective way to the war in Ukraine. So we've seen several rounds of sanctions, each progressively tightening Russia. And the whole aim of the EU is to try and undermine Russia's economy to the extent that it's no longer worthwhile to continue with the war. But it's been very careful to protect energy trade so far in the sanctions. So the whole emphasis has been on financial constraints, bans on new investments, and access to capital markets. And we see the effect because we see European companies are already pulling out of Russia, which is not because they're not allowed to have business in Russia, but they see that having business in Russia is now a problem, a reputational damage problem. So you have the EU's response at a high level, and then you have these secondary responses, which reinforce the EU response. I mean, but yet, as you mentioned, there's no sanctions on energy trade as yet. I mean, what's the main reason for that, would you say? Europe is too dependent on <laughs> Russian gas to say goodbye to mm. it overnight. And that's, that's been the case for a long time. I think what is interesting is that Europe is in a better place now than it was in 2009 when there was an interruption of Russian gas supplies. And so there is a bit more resilience than there was. And there is an understanding that Russia can cut gas supplies to the EU because before it happened, people think it would never happen. So psychologically, people are aware that it could happen. And now the EU is scrambling to figure out what it can do if the worst does happen. Mm. But would you expect any kind of sanction on the companies that supply gas or actually on, on, you know, on potentially a, a cut to, to the imports of gas from, from Russia? I wouldn't. Now, my mm. personal opinion is I don't see the EU putting a ban on energy imports. What we see at the moment, of course, is this conflict about how to pay for the gas. Mm. And, and that's quite a significant problem because... If Russia demands rubles and the EU doesn't want to pay in rubles, then Russia has pushed the ball back into the EU's court of how it will respond. So I don't see the EU putting a ban on imports. But the EU is obviously aware that Russia may behave in ways which would then cut supplies. But isn't there, I mean, we were discussing this yesterday, Siobhan. I mean, you know, as long as the industrial heartland of Europe could be affected by an overnight cut in, in, in gas imports, it's unlikely to ever sanction it. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, and you were, you were saying 
that in order for sanctions on gas imports to work, the whole of the EU has to agree. Is that right? Yes. So as long as there's one country that doesn't want sanctions on energy trade, and there's more than one country in the EU that doesn't want sanctions on any energy trade, mm. there will not be sanctions on energy trade. It's as simple as that, pretty much. Yeah. This whole issue of, 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 of rubles uh, is, is a legal minefield. I mean, that would be a breach of contract. And it would mean that, that Gazprom is changing its behavior quite dramatically. Instead of being this reliable supplier that it's been for years and years, it would say, no, actually, we're, gonna, we're quite happy to change the, the, the details of our contracts and, and uh, force payment in rubles. It'll be really interesting to see how that plays out, because obviously a breach of contract in normal times is a very significant problem. So it just depends whether this is considered normal times or if this is considered part of acts of aggression between the between the two parties. So there is a war going on in Ukraine. The EU is trying to take decisions to encourage Russia to stop the war. And Russia is obviously looking for ways to fight back. So the demand for payment in rubles obviously is uh, an attempt by Russia to undermine the effects of the EU sanctions, which tells you that the EU sanctions are working. So we hear EU leaders saying that it's a breach of contract and they won't stand for it. It just depends whether Gazprom is willing to burn its bridges or whether there is any chance that something else may get resolved before then. I mean, this is not for us to discuss really, is it? But, you know, we see changes in in the war in Ukraine at the moment. There appears to be, it's not getting worse at the moment. Thankfully not. I mean, it'd be very interesting to see how this, this, this sort of say ruble play will evolve and, and what, how it will potentially be resolved, if at all, and, and the Gazprom's role um, there. Yeah, what we've seen is the EU has been very clear that it does not want to pay in rubles and it sees it as a breach of contract. So it would be quite difficult now for the EU to go back on that because that would be a capitulation. So it seems like the ball is back in Gazprom's court. You know, the EU has quite, I don't know how much breathing space it has uh, to source alternative gas supplies. Other than that, it receives from Russia. But we've seen, you know, EU politicians as well as national politicians, the, the German uh, chancellor, travelling on a, on a world tour trying to source gas. Is there, is there a, a collective effort from the EU to, to source gas from, other, from countries other than Russia, Siobhan? There has always been this idea that from some countries in the EU, more, more the eastern countries that are more used to being dependent on Russian gas, that the EU would get better prices if it bargained collectively for its gas. And that has never really taken off before. But now, in the current situation, the European Commission has specifically proposed a voluntary joint gas buying platform. And it's important that it's voluntary, which means that any country can choose to join it. And the Commission wants to start that this summer because the urgent need is to have gas storages in Europe refilled before the winter in order to ensure that there is enough supply this winter. So that, that's the priority for this year, getting gas into storage. It seems unlikely that all countries would, would join the platform and some countries have economies of scale anyway. A country like Germany is a very big gas market. It doesn't need to club together to get better prices. Mm. And that's something that the German Chancellor has said himself. So there are plans afoot, and this is, this is a very new area for the EU. They can only buy gas that is available in the global gas market. So it will be interesting to see whether 
the how many people want to join the platform and whether that gives them enough volumes to actually make a difference in the prices that they can get. Mm. Have there been any takers so far? Have any countries joined it? No, it's very early stages. Mm. I mean, the, the commission literally announced that it would announce the idea last week. Mm. Okay, so yeah, exactly uh, at a very early stage. But you know, if Germany doesn't join, how much clout can such a kind of collective effort have? Well, I suppose it's all relative, isn't it? Mm. The markets in the East are all relatively small markets. But from their perspective, if they join up together, then they have a bargaining power, which could be two or three times their power by themselves. And yet they would still be less than the bargaining power of Germany. You mentioned gas storage, Sean. I mean, can you highlight or outline the plans that the Commission has laid? And what, what is your view of those targets being met? Last week, the Commission put forward new legal proposals, which, well, it proposed legally binding rules to force member states to ensure that their storages are filled on average by 80% by the 1st of November this year. And then the rules would be for every for the following years, it should be 90%. But this year, because these rules, first of all, they have to be approved and then applied. So there's not much time. Everything is very time sensitive this year. So for this year, it would be 80%. How easy it is to do that? Well, one of the key problems is like to be that some storage is owned by Gazprom. Mm. And then we're back to this idea of in normal times, Gazprom might want to comply with EU rules and not be in breach of contract. But at the moment, it is difficult to know how the EU could comply Gazprom to fill its storages. And so that's the problem that we will have to wait and see how that develops. Could the countries where those storage facilities are present is, you know, the nationalisation or the forced takeover of, of such, the disappropriation of such storage, is that, is that a possibility? So what the Commission has proposed is that storages that are considered strategic, which is particularly large storages or storages which have been historically underfilled ahead of winter, would have to be certified by national regulators. And this is likely to affect storages owned by Gazprom. And the proposal is that if a regulator finds that the owner of a storage is a risk to European supply security, then the commission will be able to tell, to make that owner divest its shares in the storage facility. So that's not the same as nationalising. Mm. That's more like... EU competition law, where mm. where you see if, if there is a behaviour or an ownership of assets in a market which is causing a problem in the market, then the Commission can make that company change its behaviour or sell its shares. The problem is because everything's under such time pressure. So the Commission's proposal is that storages would have to be certified. These priority storages would have to be certified within 100 days. But given that this proposal is unlikely to be in force until the autumn, even if they fast track it, that would be really fast. And then you've got another three months after that Mm. for a storage to be certified. You've still got a problem for this year and for this winter about how those storages are operated. Yeah, so the the 1st of November looks very ambitious then. Mm. And and of course, you know, the impact then on on getting these facilities 80% full uh, across Europe, uh, you know, the, the impact on prices, on, on wholesale market prices could also be quite quite staggering. Uh, they're already very high. Shimon, I wanted to talk to you a little bit also because 
we're in the midst of an energy crisis across Europe, and, and it started pretty much after the summer last year when gas flows from Russia primarily you know, started to, to, to be reduced quite significantly. And uh, there were fears, you know, many, many fears that, that, that the gas imports would be, would be cut significantly. And of course, you know, energy, we all know the story, you know, energy prices, gas, wholesale gas and power soared to extents that we, ha- we have never seen. And on the back of this, we've seen several countries in Europe call for market intervention. Now, what, what's the latest status here? I mean, there, there seems to be a split between northern and southern Europe. Would that be a, a correct interpretation? I think the split is between countries whose retail consumers are more closely linked to the spot price and countries where consumers are more on hedged and and longer term Mm. contracts. So we see particularly countries which have a lot of renewables, like in Spain, and they don't have very big interconnection capacity with the rest of Europe. But the price is being set by marginal gas fire plants. And the difference is very high in places like Spain. So Spain, a country like Spain is thinking, we've got all this cheap renewables, and yet we're forced to pay this high, this high power price, which is linked to gas, which is not a big player in our market. And they have a lot of consumers who have taken out contracts that are linked to the spot price. So the impact of those high prices transfers very quickly to domestic consumers. So they have a problem, a problem which is not the same as in other parts of Europe. And so that's why you see countries like um, Spain, particularly, pushing for the ability to intervene in the power price. So that, that, that's Spain primarily, but also France and Italy, um, as far as I understand. Yes. yes. Yeah. Maybe for and similar pushing. reasons, although there's a lot of gas burning in, in Italy. But then the countries that oppose such moves, who, who would they be then? So the classic market-oriented countries, <laughs> uh, Germany, Netherlands. Uh, Germany, I mean, obviously, Germany is the big market and Germany is not a fan of market intervention. And they say that every time. But what's the outcome here? Do you think the commission will give in and allow some form of market intervention, at least temporarily? Yes, it seems that way. Uh, Last week, there was a meeting of EU leaders and they agreed that Spain and Portugal have this very specific problem of high renewables and low interconnection. And they are they will be allowed a temporary exemption and to intervene in the power market. They have to make proposals to the Commission, to the European Commission, who would have to assess them. And they have to be proposals that don't distort the rest of the EU market. So there is some there is some flexibility there for some temporary interventions. Some of the countries, like France, has been pushing for a wider overhaul of the European power market to move away from marginal pricing. But it's difficult to see that that would would get enough support to be taken up. But the Commission is going to come with some some proposals and ideas in in May Mm. on how to to adjust the power market to reflect the fact that there is more renewables and there's more volatility. And these are not new ideas. I mean, the EU reformed its power market just a couple of years ago in this direction. So uh, we will wait to see what the Commission proposes in May. Anything that they propose that is going to be legal is going to take several years before it would actually be enforced because of the time it takes to approve legislation. 
so that you've got these parallel tracks. You've got things that governments can do immediately, which would come under state aid rules, possibly, mm. um, and would need approval from the Commission. And then the longer term track, which is changes to legislation, which is what France is pushing for. I mean, in a way, it's a bit of a slippery slope, though, isn't it? I mean, if you start, because every power market or national power market has its own characteristics and, and could be exempt from certain aspects of the, of, the, of the wholesale price. So this is why one of the criteria is that any such measures should not distort the wider European market or cross-border trading. And obviously, like mm. you say, there is a big risk that if you've got measures that are capping prices in one market, it's going to muffle the signals for where power should flow mm. in, in Europe. So it could affect cross-border trading. So that's, a, that's the kind of things I'll have to look at and guard against. I mean, it's been quite interesting. This is my interpretation, Siobhan. But as I, you know, at the start of the energy crisis, sort of late last year or, you know, or mid last year, really, you saw a lot of sort of isolationist, maybe call them nationalistic moves to protect their own uh, consumers and within their own borders. But now after the war in Ukraine, there's been a far greater collective response. And you see really the EU standing together, don't you? You certainly see the EU standing together in terms of its response to agreeing to sanctions on Russia and agreeing on some policy ideas like the need to save energy, the need to use more renewables. I think domestic energy markets will always be national mm. because politicians are voted in by their citizens and energy prices in that sense are always a national issue. We've seen governments fall because of mm. high energy prices. So it is something that national governments are very interested in making sure that their citizens feel that their governments are doing the right thing by them. Mm. And we've seen several moves, I mean, all across the Europe and there's Price cap, retail price caps or direct subsidies in other countries. So absolutely, that, that's very clear. But if I can ask you about, we, we've talked about the commission, so that's the EU executive. How about the parliament? Is that more interventionist? Is that more are MEPs calling for more action to, to combat high prices? That's a very good question. I would say, so in the European parliament, you would normally get those on the left who are very keen to protect the vulnerable in society. And then those on the right would normally be more market oriented. When it comes to intervening in the markets, the parliament tends to favour citizens because it is the only directly elected body in the EU decision making system. So in that sense, they are a bit more like a national government in that they are, they rely on citizens being happy to get voted in. And so I think the parliament would probably veer towards protecting citizens. But to be fair to the commission, the commission is not not against citizens, vulnerable mm. citizens being protected. It just doesn't want the process of doing that to distort the entire internal energy mm. market, which brings benefits to people in mm. other ways, in the economies mm. of scale and efficiencies and so on. So it's not the case that um, you protect customers and consumers only by directly intervening in the market. If you've got a very efficient market, that's also benefiting mm. consumers. No, of course. You know, it's a regular theme, if you like, in, in the Montel Weekly podcast and in many episodes. And this is a question of the energy crisis or the current issues 
is there any chance that they could derail the Fit for 55 and, and the moves to a, a faster energy transition? Or is it going to speed it up? My view is it will speed up. There's nothing to indicate that anyone thinks using more fossil fuels is a good idea these days. I think what will be interesting is seeing people who previously would have said it's too expensive, it's too ambitious, it's going too quickly. Those people are going to be changing their minds, mm. essentially. So it's the, the, the key card to play here is, is the independence card as well. Absolutely. Mm. This is always one of the arguments, and it just depends which politics are in play at, to say which one gets put forward first. But the energy security was always one of the pillars of the, of the policy. Energy security, affordability and climate change were the three pillars of the Commission's energy policy or the EU's energy policy for decades now. And at the moment, obviously, energy security is is very high. I would hope that within a few years, energy security is resolved and then they go back to it being uh, climate change. But at the moment, energy security and affordability have, have gone to the top. And hopefully those policies the policies that are taken now will reassure people that energy will become secure and bring back, if not uh, lower prices, but more predictable prices. Fingers crossed, Siobhan. Yes. Many thanks for joining the Monto Weekly Podcast this week. Thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Monto Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or you know, let us know if you, if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.